When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode is a little bit saucier than normal with some explicit sexual references. A little bit of swearing. So if that isn't your cup of tea or you are sitting there listening with the kids, you might want to, I don't know, check out one of our other past episodes instead. The oldest object that we think is a sex toy was a stone phallus that was discovered in the Jura Mountains and it dates to 30,000 years old. Crikey. Hello, hello and welcome to Patented. It's a podcast series all about the history of inventions. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for joining me. It's wonderful to have your company. In this episode, I'm going to be looking at the history of sex toys. It's fair to say, I think, that sex toys aren't quite as taboo as they once were. For starters, here I am talking to you now about them, and also regularly referenced in films and TV. No longer are sex toys hidden away, locked away in sock drawers. They're out in the open. But let's cast our minds back, shall we, to the 1990s, and we can see an interesting turning point when sex toys entered the mainstream and became a cultural reference point that's so ubiquitous. Men are going to be obsolete anyway. I mean, already you can't talk to them. You don't need them to have kids with. You don't even need them to have sex with anymore, as I've just very pleasantly discovered. Uh-oh, sounds like somebody just got their first vibrator. Not first. Ultimate. And I think I'm in love. Oh, please stop. This is so sad. Come on, I'm not going to replace a man with some battery-operated yeah, device. you say that, but you haven't met the rabbit. Oh, come on. If you're going to get a vibrator, at least get one called the horse. So this is 1998. This is an episode of Sex and the City. It's called The Hare and the Tortoise. And the reference to sex toys at the time, it seemed daring and new and a little bit risque. Now, of course, it seems positively pedestrian. And if we look at the stats, over 52% of women in the US use a vibrator and many men too. One in three men use them too. And a third of British women own a sex toy. So there you go. But how did we get to this place where sex toys are now so embraced and and we're so open about it? Well, today on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by the wonderful Kate Lister, host of the history hit podcast Betwixt the Sheets. She's a sex historian. She's also the curator of that wonderful site on Twitter. You might follow her, Whores of Yore. It's absolutely brilliant. So welcome to Kate. Welcome to Patented. Let's get started. with Dr. Kate Lister from a history hit betwixt the sheets plus Whores of Yore. 
So sex toys. I mean, you're you're a historian. You're not a historian specifically of sex toys. But you're a historian of all of sex, and your work is fascinating. But I want to talk about sex toys particularly because I'm curious as to how far back can we go? Presumably, all the way back. All the way back. As long as there have been human beings, we've been having sex. It's kind of like this weird perception that we often have about people in the past is that they were somehow sexless. They can't have been because we're all living, breathing. Yeah, presumably, Kate, listen, you can trace yourself all the way back to the last universal common ancestor, a kind of amoeba. And we've been having sex since the amoeba. But actually, the interesting thing is that animals procreate, obviously, but we do it not just to procreate, we do it because it's fun. We do it because it's fun. In fact, there was some research published a couple of years ago into the reasons that human beings have sex. There was like over 250 reasons that she came up with, which was and she's tried them all. She tried them. I don't think she was that invested. But it was things like everything from I was horny and I wanted to have sex through to I was bored, through to I wanted a promotion, through to like every reason. We don't just have sex to make babies. We don't just have sex because it's fun. There are so many motivations and that does seem to set human beings apart from a lot of other animals yeah well we've turned it into an art form like cooking you know we don't just cook because we need to eat we cook because it's kind of art no absolutely we've got a whole like ritual thing that goes around and part of that means that we're now more anxious about sex than any other animal on the planet we won't start with the last universal common ancestor because that's just an amoeba so let's start with kind of modern humans or even Neanderthals. I think I read somewhere that there was, did I read somewhere that Neanderthals used sex toys of some description or? The oldest object that we think is a sex toy was a stone phallus that was discovered in the Jura Mountains of Germany and it dates to 30,000 years old. Crikey. And whenever this kind of thing is unearthed, there then ensues a lot of debate about yeah, but what is it? Because it's really easy to look at it and go, that's dick shape. That doesn't mean that it was a sex toy. And then you get a lot of yeah. contested, look, maybe it was just a nice stone-shaped dildo that these people just enjoyed having on their mantelpiece. Can I show you something along those lines? So I'm holding up to the camera this. Yes, he is. This is a wooden penis shape. Not just penis shape, it's a wooden penis, which I got from when I was in Bhutan. And everywhere in Bhutan... They've just got kind of penises on all their buildings. And every gift shop you go to, you buy these. I'm assuming we wouldn't class that as a sex toy. I mean, it's a fertility symbol of some kind or some sort of symbol of procreation of some kind. I mean, anything's a sex toy if you're determined enough. But <laughs> I don't think, don't think that that was supposed... Because it's wooden and it's got like quite a harsh ridge on it. Do you know why the human penis has a ridge on it? Why there's oh, yes, anthropological I do. studies T- have suggested... Yes, please. Tell us that. Right, so it's been suggested by anthropologists that the reason for the human-shaped penis is actually because on an anthropological level, you are expecting rival sperm to be in the vaginal cavity. So the penis is shaped like that to try and scoop out competing sperm when you are procreating. And you get that across the animal kingdom, actually, is sperm competition. How weird. There you go. So we've found phalluses throughout, not just phalluses, we find, you know, ancient Venus sculptures and this things, which presumably buy into our sort of supernatural views of the world rather than our sexual ones. Those things aside, perhaps, when's the first kind of actual, okay, we're using this to get off? This is a definite sex toy. So we've got evidence that goes, you know, right back to cave paintings. As soon as someone could paint on a wall, they drew, they drew a cock and balls. <laughs> well, hey, 
I grew up as a stupid child drawing cocks and balls. And And maybe in 20,000 years, that'll be being studied by academics, just wondering, but what does this mean? So you've got like evidence of interest in sex and there's a whole debate about, yeah, but was it erotic? Or was it like your wooden cock is there, just a souvenir? So really what you need for evidence of sex toys is A, writing to exist. You need someone to have been writing about it and for that to have survived. And ideally for the object itself to have survived. So what we get is you get writing from the time. So like 17th century erotica, there is a book called The School of Venus, which was banned and it was all kinds of smuttiness. And Samuel Pepys writes in his diary that he bought a copy of it and then he read it and he was so ashamed he went and burnt it. But that makes reference to dildos being used. And then you've got things like the Marquis de Sade who writes about them. And then they start turning up in erotica all the time. And we found a few examples. So like 18th century ebony dildos were found. And it must have cost a lot of money. I mean, these are stylish items. But you're also looking at it going, it must have been a hell of uncomfortable though. Presumably the Greeks must have been using... I mean, I think of Aristophanes, who was the Greek playwright who wrote all those kind of bawdy comedies. From memory, there was lots of stuff about wanking and sex toys. Yeah, made of bread. Made of bread, that's right. Breadsticks, sex toys. Crikey. You know, like the human imagination is endless. Like, what would you use for a sex toy if you couldn't log on and order them online? Yeah, we use bits of bread and we'll use carved bits of stone and we'll just, like, it's infinite is the stuff that we'll do. One of my favourite things about historical sex toys is you get a lot of references to them being used like plungers. And I think that they found a couple like this. There's one in the Science Museum, I think. And they're like wooden and it's a plunger and they suggest that you put hot milk in it to simulate semen. That came from the mind of a man. There is no woman who thought, I know what I need is fake cum. That just didn't happen. That's the best thing about a dildo is not having to clean up afterwards. But they thought it needs that. there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's a big jump, I suppose, from dildos, I suppose we've had forever, as you've outlined, to the vibrator. And just clear up some myths, because there's loads of myths about where vibrators come from. And the one that kind of sticks in my mind, 
just because it's funny, is that Cleopatra invented the vibrator because she had some box with bees in it that buzzed. I have heard that. I've never seen any actual evidence for it. I think we will have to chalk that up to crazy stories about Cleopatra. Yeah, the story is that she got like a metal phallic shaped tube and put bees in it. Okay, so Cleopatra aside, I'm going to guess that it's the Victorians somehow invented the vibrator. If so, how so? Yes and no. Speaking of myths, there's a whole myth that the Victorians invented vibrators to masturbate female patients to orgasm to try and cure them of hysteria. And this myth crops up all the time. There are online articles about it. Two films were based on it. There's one called Hysteria and there was The Road to Wellness. That's right, The Road to Wellness. Yeah, but there isn't really any evidence of this myth, but they did invent what they called the vibrator. So it was invented by a guy called Granville in the 1880s, but he was really clear that it wasn't supposed to be used on women. He only wanted it to be used on men. And it doesn't look like any kind of vibrator that you would recognise. What it looked like was like a giant car battery with, it looked like a heavy lead weight dangling off it. And this weight would bang against the body. And he called it percussing, that you would percuss a patient. And it's just like, even with the best imagination in the world, that is a shit sex toy. And what was the percussing for if it wasn't... Or was it kind of percussing, wink, wink? Yeah. So the Victorians, as you said, they tended to invent everything. And because so much stuff was getting invented, what you get is this wave of pseudoscientific insanity on so many things. Because they've just discovered it. Like, they've invented a battery. Electricity is suddenly a thing. And so they start thinking it must have some kind of health benefits. And they did it with radium and they did it with magnets. And it's just utter madness. Whenever something new turned up, there'd be quacks thinking, oh, this is going to be the cure-all to everything. And vibrators in this kind of weird, yeah, but it's just like a lead weight that gently hits your side. That was supposed to be this big cure-all for like nervousness and anxiety and all manner of stuff. I'm just trying to imagine the point where, or imagine the scenario where someone's got this kind of like, I'm imagining a car battery and some big lead weights and sort of banging. And someone thought, I wonder if I just put that a bit lower down. Well, I mean, somebody will have done, won't they? Because human beings are inherently mucky. And if you ask any doctor or nurse who works in the ER room, how many people come in with things in cavities that shouldn't be there? So somebody will have put it to that use. But it's not something that you would look at immediately and think, God, that's sexy. It would take a lot of work. But what you do get is when his vibrator thing starts to be developed is you get variations on that. And then what you kind of get is they start looking a bit like egg whisks, like they're kind of like hand cranked. And they had like pads underneath that kind of go on the body. All I'm imagining now is an egg whisk. <laughs> it's not far off an egg whisk. <laughs> Just an egg whisk. I'm thinking, that's not going to... That's, that's not gonna sexy. It's, that's going to trap bits. They weren't supposed to be used on the genitals. Okay, so it's sort of a hand-cranked sort of vibrator. Well, I can see how You've that would work. you got some hand-cranked ones, yeah, and some battery-powered and some electricity-powered ones as well. Was there a point where these sort of vibrating things that are used for other medical things, for ooh, lower back pain or muscular aches perhaps, where someone actually started marketing them as sex toys. I mean, I say that even now, you know, you see these, you know, magic wand type vibrators, which is still marketed as, you know, on the advert, they've got people using them on their shoulders and stuff. And you know, everyone knows, well, actually, that's just going to be... The Hitachi wand vibrator really was marketed as something to cure muscle pain. 
for a very, very, with all genuine honesty from the company, they became aware of what people were using it for pretty early on, but didn't want to acknowledge it. I think it's only within like the last few years that they've actually marketed it as a sex toy, but they genuinely did market it as muscle relaxant. I mean, presumably attitudes have just changed radically because now, crikey, we can do podcasts about sex toys now. But even when I was growing up in the Victorian times, they weren't called sex toys. It was all a bit seedy and they were kind of like marital aids and that kind of thing. You know, it was a bit sort of hush-hush and a bit taboo. I mean, even back then, Victorian times and sort of a bit later on, was it still really taboo? Did people talk about it? I mean, the Victorians were pretty smutty. I mean, they were incredibly smutty, but there's a difference between being smutty in private and being allowed to be open about it. And it wasn't just that it was taboo, it was illegal. So especially in America, where you had this thing called the Comstock Law, which basically prohibited anything sex-related being sent in the post. So you couldn't order anything. So that the reason that they started being called marital aids or health vibrators for muscles is yeah. to try and get round that so they could be sold. So it's a legal thing. Actually, when we think about sex toys, we generally think about sex toys for women, I think. But can we talk about the evolution of things like sex dolls? They've got really unbelievably realistic now, sex dolls. The history of the sex doll goes right back in history as well, is never, ever underestimate the weirdness to which humans will go to get their rocks off. So there's records of, back in ancient Greece, there was a very famous statue of Aphrodite called Aphrodite of Knossos. And it was one of the first nude female statues in Greece that it caused this like, massive sensation. And like men were lining up to try and wank over it, basically, and do all kinds of strange stuff. And then there's records of sailors being at sea and there being kind of this sort of half-woman's formed thing out of rags that they would use to try and have sex with. And then in the 19th century, you've got kind of like veiled references to machines, they would be called at the time. It goes back way, way, way beyond this. You can create this perfect woman. So this sex doll isn't new. What is new is the technology and the effort that goes into it. And there absolutely is this kind of fight on at the moment to get the most high-tech sex doll, like one with artificial intelligence. There are too many questions here. There's companies I've seen, not that I've Googled them, obviously. Oh, God, no, no. They are so, not just realistic, but expensive, like thousands and thousands of pounds. Thousands and thousands of pounds. And so, like, you blow up doll that, you know, you see on stag do's and stuff like that. That's not going to cost you very much. And then you can get the upgrade as a rubber doll that look very realistic and they're kind of like this hyper-feminized thing, but they don't have any kind of, like, robotic features to them. And you can now get, like, these super high-tech sex robots and there's this big fight like sex robot wars i'd watch that, that would work commissioned i would totally commission that sorry carry on yeah so sex robot wars yeah so sex robot wars but there's this big fight on to try and get the sex robot with artificial intelligence and now at the moment they can speak to you but only in the same way that like your phone can speak to you but this is all novelty i wouldn't want my vibrator to talk to me that's just ridiculous i agree i think you're right about the novelty but ultimately there have always been sex dolls in one way or another so there's this big fear at the moment that sex dolls and sex robots are going to replace women and there have been anti-sex doll marches especially there was one in amsterdam a couple of years ago because there was a sex doll brothel that had been opened up and the fear was that it was actually putting real women 
out of work, which it was. So there is that implication to consider. But there is quite an aggressive backlash from some feminists who get very, very cross about the idea of like you've just reduced the female form down to just tits and a vagina and a Bluetooth receptor. And there's all this kind of like ethical implications. And then I read one about like the issue of consent. Like if you've created this absolutely perfect sex robot that can talk back to you, does it have an issue with consent? And it's getting into all this ethical stuff. Yeah, we're getting into some deep politics here. People just want to wank, don't they? That's what That's they're... what I was going to say. I don't need a Bluetooth. I don't need to turn it off and turn it on again. Yeah, so it's an ethical minefield and very expensive. They will be there and there will be a novelty about them, but I do not think that they are ever going to replace actual sex. I mean, going back to some particularly female sex toys, I mean, there are some which have become cultural markers as well. I suppose the rabbit is the big one. When was that, the 90s, late 90s? or That was the 90s. So actually what happened is there's a few like heroes in this story that don't get nearly enough press. So as you said, like in the early 20th century and kind of right up to like the 1950s and 60s, you could get sex toys, but they were marketed as marital aids or vibrators, like, you know, neck massages and stuff like that. And they weren't of very good quality because they were quite seedy and there'll be people listening who remember going into sex shops they won't you know say it out loud but if you went into a sex shop in like the 80s it was a really seedy affair as it wasn't very female friendly and the guy that's sort of responsible for the vibration revolution and the silicon vibrator is a guy called Gosrell Duncan who he was a dancer and he was quite a good looking ladies man and he was in a horrible accident in I think it was the 60s or the 70s that left him completely paralyzed from the waist down and he could no longer get an erection and he was really really worried that he could no longer pleasure his partner but he couldn't find anything on the market that wasn't this kind of like rock hard awful plastic monstrosity that just hurts people so he set about with the disabled community to find a sex toy made of silicon that was close to the real thing that was comfortable and pleasurable and it's kind of thanks to this guy that we now have silicon dildos absolute unsung hero and then we get them in all kinds of shapes and sizes. I mean, there is, again, the attitudes towards them have completely changed. I mean, no longer do they need to be hidden away in sock drawers. They can be out on display without fear of ridicule or... They've actually had got quite a politically contested history. And when the women's lib feminist movement was getting growing in the 70s, we were in the bra burning phase. There was quite a heavy pushback against dildos about lesbians in particular, women using dildos because it was like this kind of like symbol of the patriarchy. Like, how can you go and fight for women equality and freedom from male oppression and then go home at night and pleasure yourself with a penis? So it became this quite contested ground for a while there. There was a lot of shame, more than just, you know, this is sex, but it was, yeah, like you're a bad feminist. But presumably lesbians would use strap-ons for sex, for pegging. That's always been there. But in the 1970s, you get this emergence of almost like political lesbianism, where it was, you know, like and a real kind of aggressive anti-male stance develops. And the idea was that in certain sort of radical factions that you free yourself completely from male oppression and the dildo became emblematic of like, you don't need a man for sexual pleasure. And if you are using a dildo, you're letting the side down. Interesting. So what's the sort of direction of travel of sex toys? You know, the fact that we're making podcasts about them, we're sort of talking about them a lot and we get all these new sort of technology creeping into sex toys. Is that going to calm down? I mean, you'll always have the novelty. There'll always be somebody who is like, yes, that's a dildo, but can we link it up to TikTok somehow or whatever <laughs> it is? But like these things are novelty. They're not 
what people are buying. What I hope more and more going forward is that the conversation becomes more and more normalised and that people start to lose the stigma and the shame about self-pleasure. Yeah. Well, here we are talking about a podcast and here I am as a man of a certain age and I just use the word pegging. I didn't even blush or even sort of raise an eyebrow. Kate, we've run out of time. It's lovely to talk to you. Oh, it's nice to talk to you too. And your podcast is brilliant. And Whores of Yore, I've been a loyal follower for a long time. Oh, thank you. It's both great fun and really, really interesting, which is the sweet spot. That's what you want. Fun, interesting, doesn't take itself too seriously, and sometimes it might take itself seriously, but it's terrific. So thank you very much. And you've got a book as well, which is... Yeah, Curious History of Sex. I do talk about sex dolls and vibrators. Brilliant. So there we go. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much, Kate. I love talking to Kate. Absolutely brilliant. That was such fun. Don't forget to listen to Kate's podcast on History Hit. Betwixt the Sheets, it's available wherever you're listening to this podcast. Don't forget new episodes of my podcast every Wednesday and Sunday. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Don't forget to get in touch if you'd like me to cover one of your favourite stories. And I look forward to your company very soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.